Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 153, The Defector. Welcome in to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Then shove our names familiar in his mouth as household words. Well, John, you might be overstating it a tiny bit. I mean, we have we have a lot of listeners, and we love them. But um, I don't think I would go so far as to call us household names. Such outward things spell not in my desires, but if it be a sin to covet honor, I am the most offending soul alive. Yeah. We're doing an episode of Mission Log. Uh, today, by the way, is The Defector. And, uh, you know, it's... Look, our show's good, but it's, you know, it's just a regular show, dude. Oh, then he which hath no stomach for this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made and crowns put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. Yeah, again, just a podcast, no one's going to die. Sorry, I, when I run out of material, I, I automatically turn to Shakespeare. <laughs> we I, few, I, we I, happy few, we band of brothers. I see what you did there. Uh-huh. That's, that's very nice. Well, well done, sir. Sorry for changing up the order a bit if you've actually memorized the St. Crispin's Day speech, but, you know, it's it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you were so yeah. going to outclass me. If you were doing Hamlet, I'd have been with you on at least half of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. I, I know why you did Henry V, and, you know, people who yeah. don't know. Well, you're um, about to find out. <laughs> yeah, we'll be let in on it in a very big way coming up. But before we let them in on that, let's let them in on how to get in touch with us, because uh, there are a few ways that they can, and we would certainly love it if they did. Now, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641, as seen on bathroom walls across the country and around the world. <laughs> Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including Discover Documents and all kinds of other stuff, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log, also seen on bathroom walls across the country and around the world from time to time. <laughs> For a good time, turn to John Champion's trivia. Oh, thank you, Ken. And Ken, today... <laughs> Dude, it's on bathroom walls. I don't know if you should today, thank well, me, but go ahead. But, but it's in the Stuckies all across America. <laughs> what is that place, anyway? Yeah, okay. Good. No, go ahead, please. Just <sighs> Ken, welcome to the 90s. Uh, the, the Defector uh, first premiered in the U.S. on January 1st, 1990. Really? Seems like only yesterday. New Year's Day. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, it depends kind of when you caught it. December that's 3rd, that's, that's slash true. January 1st. But yeah. Um, uh, today's episode was written by Ronald D. Moore. Now, this was kind of a problematic script. And, and he rightfully gave a lot of credit to everyone on the writing team for pitching in. It was his premise. But most of the original draft was thrown out and different writers within the staff took on different acts. Michael Piller, of course, is given credit by Moore for really pulling it together. Today's episode was directed by Robert Shearer, who we had just discussed a couple of weeks ago with The Price. And uh, references, references throughout. Well, there are references to a couple of other ships, uh, the Monitor and the Hood. In real life, the real HMS Hood was sunk in 1941 by the Bismarck. And the real Monitor was the first ironclad ship commissioned by the U.S. Navy and operated during the early years of the Civil War. She was lost at sea in 1862. Now, more importantly... There are references throughout today's show to Shakespeare's Henry V. Huh? I missed all of those. <laughs> you, you missed every word. Okay. Yeah. Just bear with me. Bear with me, Ken. <laughs> Go ahead. All right. Uh, now, you, you may or may not remember mm-hmm. that Kenneth Branagh's film adaptation had come out in November of 1989. Now, for this episode, a Sherlock Holmes scene had been devised for the opening, and again, on the holodeck with Data, but they couldn't get the rights. You may remember that when we first talked about doing Sherlock Holmes on the holodeck, they had to work out the right situation later, and it took much, much longer for them to be able to come back to that character. So very quickly, a Henry V opening was devised, and Data name-checks Branagh, along with Olivier, of course. Now, let's talk a little bit about the real Henry V. He lived from 1387 to 1422 and is best known for well, for being the subject of one of Shakespeare's plays. But historically, 
for decisive victories over the French, namely the Battle of Agincourt. Now, he married uh, Catherine de Valois, the daughter of Francis King Charles VI, and their son, Henry VI, ruled over both countries. The play takes place mainly around the Battle of Agincourt. And if you don't know the play, please, please, please see the Kenneth Branagh movie. It is awesome. Or see the Olivier version, either one. But I'm a huge fan of the Branagh version, if you didn't know that. Um, Guest stars. We have Andreas Katsoulis back as Commander Tomalak. We last saw him in The Enemy. Now we really want to spend some time talking about James Sloyan, who plays Admiral Jarek. He served in the Army in the early 1960s and then found work in the New York theater scene shortly thereafter. In the 70s and 80s, he made a huge number of TV appearances in shows like Kojak, Wonder Woman, Chips, and The Love Boat, and yes, even the movie Xanadu. Now in 1979, he appeared in a two-parter of Buck Rogers in the 25th century in the episode The Plot to Kill a City alongside another Trek veteran, Frank Gorshin. I got to stop you on one thing. Oh wait, oh, okay. Because I know your next, I know your next thing is going to be in more Star Trek. It's because yeah. I read ahead a tiny bit, but you left I mean, out. He's going to be in a ton of them. A ton, a ton of, of them, really. Yeah. I look forward to that. Here's what's weird. Um, if you had asked me <laughs> what this guy was uh-huh. most famous for, yeah. Uh, do you remember the Madeline Kahn sitcom that I think was on for like five minutes, maybe ten? Okay, well, I, I loved Madeline Kahn. Yeah. And I remember that she had a show. I do not remember anything about that. It show. was called Oh, oh Madeline. Okay. Yeah, and I remember nothing about the show except that it was around the time we talked about like the twenty minute workout a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember that, like you know because because aerobics were all the rage at the time, and I remember in the opening credits she had like an aerobics outfit on, which is so not Madeline Kahn. <laughs> no. uh, the thing is, the thing is, as soon as I was watching this episode, Jarak comes on the screen, uh, and and I'm like, oh my god, it's the husband from from the Madeline Kahn show, <laughs> and and I don't I remember nothing about that show, but I remember this guy. Wow. And and so wow. even though I remember nothing about it, that's my favorite credit, mostly because it's like right up there with Super Train as far as like the number of people who remember it. <laughs> and I think yeah. for a number of episodes, too. I, I think when I checked it out on IMDb, it was it was a half season show, Oh, which man. is amazing because Madeline Kahn was huge. I said it's not fair for Madeline Kahn. No, it's not. It's not. Yeah. And sadly, that was probably one of the last things she did. Right. Mm, well, that was in the 80s, like early 80s. Right. Right. Which I want to say is when I want to say she died in the mid 80s. I, I thought it was later than that, right. but, but but maybe not. Well, but, we'll pretend but. like we're going to check on that and tell people later, even though we won't. But We will. No but, matter what it is, we miss her. <laughs> that'll be, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Man, you know. And, uh, and yeah, he got to hang out with her, which is kind of cool. I don't know yeah. why I remember him from that, because I seriously couldn't tell you anything about any episode of that show, but I, I did know that that was her husband on the show, so weird. He's a memorable guy. He, he doesn't... You know, he was not as big a star as Frank Gorshin and Buck Rogers, but I sure as hell remember him from Buck Rogers because he's got he's got presence. He's got it. He's got it, kid. And you'll go far <laughs> if you got it. <laughs> I, you know, he's almost got Pep and Moxie. He does. Yeah, he does. He's got both. All right. And uh, finally, I want to talk about another guest star in this show, Patrick Stewart. Because he is a guest star in the opening. That is him as the character Williams from Henry V. Now, that makeup job was designed by Michael Westmore, but this is some of Doug Drexler's early work as well on Next Gen. So a few months prior, Doug had wrapped doing extensive makeup effects for the movie Dick Tracy. And according to him, he could not wait to get over to Paramount to work on Star Trek. So he had actually come in for Booby Trap, did a little bit of work on that. And uh, he spent quite a bit more time on this one. And he said that Patrick Stewart loved doing this makeup because it kind of gave him license to goof off going around scaring people on set. That is that is pretty cool. But you say he actually – his first makeup work on Star Trek was, was Booby Trap? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I meant Booby Trap. Oh, okay. So he was on he was on this episode, but before that, booby trap. Before you ride into informed John and Ken, Madeline Kahn died in nineteen ninety nine. They really should thank me for finding that information. A night in October in the year 1415, near the French town of Agincourt, 
Two rough-looking soldiers in the English army welcome a visitor to their camp, a stranger who talks of the king as nothing more than a man. The stranger is Data, and he's performing a scene from Henry V on the holodeck to the delight of Captain Picard. He explains that he's been studying various performances to arrive at his own, but Picard encourages the android to find his own voice. The two are interrupted with a call from the bridge that a vessel is heading from the neutral zone toward Federation space. It's a Romulan scout ship, and the pilot is asking for asylum just as a warbird decloaks. Act 1. That little scout ship is taking a beating, but the Enterprise moves in. Picard orders to extend the Enterprise shields around the scout ship to protect it well enough. Then when he contacts the warbird, it simply flies away. The Romulan from the scout ship is beamed aboard. He is Sub-Lieutenant Sital, a lowly logistics officer, and he demands to see Captain Picard. He has information of dire consequence, which he needs to give right away. In the conference room, Sital explains that the Romulans are building a base in the neutral zone at Nelvana 3 in order to carry out an attack on the Federation. They've had it with the humiliation of old defeats and will be ready to strike in two days' time. Picard could prevent galactic carnage by going there to stop them. Sital goes to sickbay while the others debate what they've just been told. Nobody knows what to believe. It's just like the Romulans to send a spy as a distraction, and it's just like the Romulans to build a base, and it's just like the Romulans to trick their opponents into the first move. Forget about gaining any new information from the ship that Satal was in. It blows up while Picard is monologuing about how tense the situation has become. In sickbay, Dr. Crusher is mending Satal's wounds while Riker is trying to get more information. It's not going anywhere. But he is picking up some choice Klingon swear words while Satal takes Worf down a peg or two. Actually, Satal kind of respects Worf. He gets the whole warrior vibe. He's just worried that it's that kind of attitude that will get them all killed. Act 2. Back in his guest quarters, an irritated Satal replicates himself a cold glass of water. Where's LQ when you need him? And removes a little orange disc from his boot. Try to remember that, will you? Might be important. On the bridge... Data and Picard are reviewing information about the Nelvana system and coming up empty. But isn't that just like a Romulan, though, cloaking everything? Is absence of evidence evidence of absence in this case? Before he can unriddle that, Picard takes a call from Starfleet. It's actually a message a few hours old, and it's an admiral who is not much help. This whole Romulan defection could be real or it could be a trick. Good luck! Jordi LaForge is using his forensic skills to paint a picture. The Romulan warbird was in pursuit of the scout ship, but it tended to slow down to not overtake her. Even though it fired, the wounds on Satal could have been self-inflicted. We're now about 21 hours away from the time Satal claimed the Romulan base would be operational. Picard has a new message from the Federation. The hood and the monitor are on their way, but no one will be there in time to help if they find themselves in a fight once the deadline arrives. Again, good luck. Picard orders Data to fire a probe toward Nelvana 3 to gather anything useful. But before he leaves, the captain wants to have a talk. Artificial heart to android heart. Remember that moment in Henry V when you were playing the king who was acting like a common soldier to find out what the troops thought? Well, how about you help me with that now? How is the crew handling what's going on right at this moment? Data says they're concerned but confident. Picard feels the burden of command that his actions may lead to the deaths of his crew if they are unsuccessful. Act 3. In the Enterprise interrogation room, yeah, you didn't know that there's an interrogation room on the Enterprise? Riker is getting Satal worked up with questions about troop numbers and fleet locations, while Deanna Troy is doing her thing, pointing out that Satal is holding something back. There's a new message for Picard, this time from the Klingons, but he has Worf take care of that one, in private. The probe that was launched earlier is sending back some interesting results to the Enterprise, so Picard has Data and Geordi try to decode what they can. Jordy is still torn between what the facts give him and what his gut tells him about Sital. Is this guy a defector or not? Has he pulled any crazy Ivans? Just when Data is trying to understand how humans can fill in the knowledge gaps with instinct, there's a new revelation from the probe. A subspace signal. Definitely not naturally occurring. Their very own wow signal, if you will. There are also ionization effects that could be produced by a cloaked ship. No time like the present for a drink. 
Data sits in 10 forward observing Satal. Satal is a little put off by the intrusion, but figures out that Data must be the android. Data is trying to see if he can get a gut feel for Satal, but the Romulan just sort of intimidates him with talk of some experiments that would probably make Bruce Maddox queasy. Let's change the subject to something lighter, shall we? Satal could go for some Romulan ale, but it starts to sink in that his defection will prevent him from having that or seeing his home planet again. Data offers the next best thing, a simulation on the holodeck of the magnificent landscape of Romulus. That must have had a profound effect on Satal. He tells Data to tell Picard that Admiral Jarek would like a meeting. Act 4. Satal is really Admiral Jarek. Get it? Jarek enters Picard's ready room to beg the captain again to do what he needs to do. Picard is still uneasy. He's unconvinced given the deception that Jarek has already displayed. He wants tactical help, and the Admiral is unwilling to give it. Jarek tries an emotional appeal. Yes, he was in charge of brutal military campaigns, but he saw that the Romulan Empire was closing in on a war with the Federation. He appealed to his superiors, but he was censured and sent away. For the sake of his family, wanting his daughter to grow up rather than die in a battle, he decided to defect. Picard holds fast, though, and demands unequivocal cooperation. Jarek agrees. A course is set for Nelvana Three. Act 5. Arriving at the planet, they find... Nothing. No base, no weapons, no Romulans. The subspace noise was created by... What? Jarek is brought to the bridge, and he is just as mystified as anyone. Then he puts the pieces together. He has been duped by the Romulan High Command and attests of his loyalty. Just as the Enterprise prepares to leave the area, what should appear but two Romulan warbirds decloaking and opening fire? On screen, it's our old friend Commander Tamalak, he who was sure they only had one missing crewman at Galorndon Corps. The jig is up. The Enterprise has entered the neutral zone under false pretense since, surprise, surprise, there is no Romulan base. That subspace noise was merely a probe. Tomalak makes his intention known. Defeat and capture of the Enterprise to display the spoils of war in the Romulan capital. It'll serve as motivation for the Romulan people and a reminder of what happens to traitors. Tomalak urges surrender, but Picard knows his crew would rather give their lives for a just cause. When Picard gives the word to Worf, it's not to open fire. It's a signal to the cloaked Klingon birds of prey to show themselves. If Tomalak is going to send us to the hospital, we're going to send him to the morgue. The Romulans back off, and we live to see another day. Now the reality of the situation has hit Jarek. The next time we see him, he has shuffled off this mortal coil, expired on the bed in his quarters. Jarek has poisoned himself with a little dose he has snuck on board, in his boot most likely. Dr. Crusher said that there was nothing she could do. They do find a note that the late admiral left for his daughter and wife, a note they will not be able to deliver any time soon. The end. You know, I'm thinking about ways that this this episode could have just been a tiny bit cooler. Mm-hmm. What's that? When Riker showed, um, when Riker showed uh, what's his name at um, uh, Jarak, mm-hmm. the food replicator in his quarters, mm-hmm. he should have suggested a particular temperature for the water. Oh, maybe like uh, five degrees Celsius. Five degrees, yeah. Mm-hmm. But say it like, you know, Billy D. Williams and the Schlitz malt liquor <laughs> ad, because that's, a lot of people wrote in a couple of weeks ago about that, about how, mm-hmm. how cool Riker thought he was by, by going five degrees. Yeah, well, it, it was pretty cool. There was a really nice callback to the events of the enemy, the mm-hmm. incident learned in court and and Worf's reaction shot in that so we had that moment in sickbay and then we had another moment of course where we re-meet uh uh commander tomalak yeah and the reason that i bring it up yeah it's completely obvious to anybody who's been watching along with us and who knows their trek trivia but the thing that i like about it so much is that it creates continuity but the episodes still stand alone and that's a really hard thing to do yeah and they did it really nicely here. So I was glad to see that happen because there's payoff if you've been watching all along. You know? Yeah, there But you is. don't have to have it. Yeah. It's also really interesting. I thought, I mean, not to not to get too much into analyzing the whole thing, but mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. boy, Jarek really makes Tomalak look silly, doesn't he? 
I mean, as far as, as far as the way they're played, and I know he was the one armed man from the fugitive, and I know he was all these things that people wrote to us and said, I can't believe he didn't mention this thing. Mostly the right, one armed right. man from the fugitive, but some other stuff too. Right. But Tomalak really, I mean, I, I I was impressed by Tomalak when we saw him in um, in the enemy. Mm-hmm. He looked cartoony uh, in this episode compared to uh, compared to uh, the guy who was playing Jarak. Yeah, right. yeah, it was right. uh, it was a. Uh, I won't get into whether or not I think it was a good performance yet. Mm-hmm. I will just say it was it was interesting to see the the, the way the two of them played uh, Romulan heavies. Sure, sure. Um, Data has uh, a terrific line. Uh, the facts can lead to the wrong conclusion, but they cannot lie. Boy, how true that is. And Jordy makes a really interesting case about filling in the missing information with God instinct. But, mm-hmm. of course... He's wrong about his conclusion that they will catch the Romulans with their pants down. Um, that that was their whole exchange. And and what I loved about um, many moments like this in the episode is that they keep the audience guessing just as much as they keep each other guessing. Mm-hmm. You know, because it, they present new information and then they second guess it, and then they come in with new information again and second guess that. So it really plays out nicely, and 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 I thought it. It could have been a little too on the nose, but the way they had that exchange was uh, was very honest, and it kind of it kind of points out the lunacy of filling in with gut instinct, but the necessity of filling in with gut instinct because that's who we are. Yeah, it's, and we're going to talk a bit more about that later because mm-hmm. there was a there was a, a gut episode um, several back. Actually, that uh, that this that this argument that their argument made me think of. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll revisit that in a, in a little bit. Now I do know it's sort of a Romulan way to be, but I, mm-hmm. I got to say there was there was one thing, and this could almost maybe be a lesson. Uh, don't insult the people from whom you're seeking help. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Jarek says something to the effect of, "I should have known better than to come looking for courage in a lair of cowards." <laughs> You know, while he's asking them to do what he's saying. I'm not yeah. saying, you know, sugarcoat things. I'm not saying offer false praise. But, uh, you know, I am saying maybe don't insult the guys, you know, who, who can actually do mm-hmm. the thing that you that you, you know, want them to do. Then again, he is a warrior, not a diplomat. I get that. But, um, yeah. Is that the Romulan way? Is it sort of just bad reverse well, psychology? Well, it is, as Picard said, Romulan defector is almost a contradiction in terms. Right. Yeah. So he's already not doing things the Romulan way. So I'm yeah. thinking go that extra step. And maybe <laughs> instead of saying dog, try please. <laughs> Which again, I don't rolls think the they tongue. would trust him. I don't think they would. Even That's more true. so. It's like, wait, you're a Romulan and you're nice? And you're saying please to me? Right. Shouldn't yeah. you be telling me that I lay in a layer of cowards? Right. Yeah. Good point that. Now, he did have one line that I think was absolutely fantastic. And, uh-huh. and, um, it, it, it's worth noting. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't think it's part of anything as far as like a big thing. But when he's standing in ten forward, and Data says, uh, "So Jarek is standing in ten forward, and he's looking out the viewport," and Data says, um, um, "I'm told by many members of the crew that this is this offers the best view on the ship." Mm-hmm. And Jarek says, "I thought it might bring me comfort, but these are not my stars." I thought uh, that was that was beautiful. I mean, there's and that's that's like mind blowing. I've heard people talk about going to like Australia. And looking up in the sky, and it makes no sense to them hmm. because it's not because it's not their stars. But to, but you know to hear it. Oh, I thought you just meant Australia makes no sense to them. No, it doesn't. No, the water stars. swerves the other way, yeah. and everybody says good day, yeah. even if it's like right. night. And it just no. <laughs> but then also looking up in the sky makes no sense either. No, uh, I, I really. Yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was. A, it, it was a beautiful line, and there was something. I mean, you said at the end, and you're right. Certainly, the fullness of what Jarek has done does hit him in the end. But it's happening mm-hmm. all through the episode. Mm-hmm. including mm-hmm. the fact that when he looks out at the sky, well, that star should be over there and those stars should be, I don't even recognize that. Ah, yeah. Everything's, everything's different. And that's a, uh, it's, it was, it, but summed up in this one fantastic line. There's something very, uh, you know, it, well, it's heartbreaking, but it, but it's really poetic. And, and that's a, a thread that's throughout this story. Not only are we paralleling scenes in Henry V and referencing Henry V. But mm-hmm. but I think the writing in this episode, they they keep coming back to this kind of poetic language and and definitely on purpose. And I feel like the actors were kind of given that freedom to do that. So you get to see these 
you know, almost archetype warrior characters that could be ripped out of a Shakespeare play. So maybe in another context, that line wouldn't have worked as well, but it, it really works perfectly there. Yeah, it so, does. Uh, yeah, it does. Appreciate that as well. Now, another line that I thought was interesting, boy, <laughs> that scene between Jarek and Picard, when mm-hmm. Jarek is finally in Picard's ready room and they are having it out and Picard screams at him, you're a traitor. Which I thought was a, it was a great scene and it was a great line. And then I wondered what that must sound like to the people on the bridge (laughs) behind that door when the captain is dressing (laughs) down somebody in the ready room. I wondered about that too. Honestly, I I wondered about, I mean, it's just a door. It's the 24th century though. Hopefully doors have gotten thicker or not thicker, maybe better at absorbing sound. Maybe. I would, I would (laughs) hope that if you just took him like off that one room that they wouldn't be able to hear everything he said. Yeah, it's usually Data in that seat that's right next to that door, and he's got he's got Data hearing. That's he's true. Got Android Android super hearing. But so you, he's like, he can wow, also, guys, the captain just called that guy a traitor, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. That's yeah. oh. Hope you're not next, Riker. <laughs> <laughs> Data, what's he saying? Yeah. <laughs> the Romulans are interesting because it it, it seems like. You know, it, maybe if this were a Klingon thing, of course, it, it, see, if the Vulcans found somebody amongst them who was a, a bad guy, a spy or whatever, they do the logical thing and they'd pull him out of his rank and they'd, they'd probably just hide him somewhere and, you know, you may just never hear from him again. Klingon would just straight up stab somebody. Sure. They would just kill whoever it was. The Romulans have gone to a lot of trouble to deceive and humiliate one of their own. Oh, I disagree. That's you I mean, just agree they haven't gone to a lot of trouble to do this. No, that's gravy. Uh, <laughs> humiliating this guy is gravy. They are trying to start a war between the Romulan Empire and and the Federation, oh, or sure, between the Romulan Federation. I mean, yeah. and Starfleet. So, I mean, you say they've gone a long way to embarrass this guy. Embarrassing this guy is just like extra. That's a bonus, right? Mm. Because I mean, the whole thing actually hinged on the Federation being good enough to not turn Jarek back over. To the Romulans. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. Picard actually said that to uh, Tomalak. He said, you expect, me to, you expect me to hand him back? And Tomalak smiles and says, no, I do not. And it's that's actually, while I was just bashing how Tomalak was played, that was actually a beautiful line. And that was very well delivered as well. I mean, it, that's, that's the one time that his smile and his little sort of like, <laughs> made sense to me when he was just like, no, no, I know you're not going to give him back to me. And that's awesome because that means I get to kill you. And I get to start this war that I'm dying to start. So, I mean, they've gone to a lot of trouble, but, I mean, it's not just to embarrass this guy. It's also to, you know, bring about the apocalypse. Well, they're trying to escalate this thing. But then I thought, you know, every time we see the Romulans, literally every time it's like, "Mm, we could destroy you, but um, we're going to do another thing now. So goodbye. (laughs) That's, That's fantastic. Remember that time we said we're back? And then we left. Well, and we're back. We're still back. Uh, we got to go again, but we'll be back. It is Patrick Stewart and Patrick Stewart, as you have never seen them before. Three men play four characters in Henry V, a vignette. Coming soon to a Renaissance fair near you. Ken, I, I don't want to sound redundant because we said it before that if Star Trek doesn't know what to do, it just throws Shakespeare out or, or the Bible. And, and in this case, they needed to fill some time, literally, they mm-hmm. needed to fill some time because they didn't have Sherlock Holmes and they chose Shakespeare. And it's perfect. It, it's just the perfect choice. And it really drives the story. And I really love Henry V. Did I mention that? Because I love Henry V. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where... In, I would think in less talented hands, mm-hmm. this would just seem like, uh, well, to use a Shakespearean term, gilding the lily, where you really would just be throwing too much at it to make it seem like you're doing something important, to make it seem like you're doing something literary. Mm-hmm. But in, in here, they really accomplish that. And it is the perfect through line for so many scenes that we get in this show. It's amazing to me that that was an accident. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me that they were originally going to do another Sherlock Holmes thing, and then it's like, oh, we need to come up with something. Well, how about this thing that makes perfect sense all the way through the show? Yeah. Eh. 
<laughs> it's, it really it's it's stunning to me that that was not that that was not uh, meant to be there. And it actually brought up the, the first of what turned out to be many uh, questions that I have uh, throughout this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting that Picard's committed to Data's learning about the human condition. Mm. Um, and it's been a while since we've done the whole you know Star Trek Shakespeare thing. But I do have a question, uh, both in universe and out. Um, what is up with Picard wanting Data to do something that he is ill-equipped to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, because he's not... He will be the first one to tell you, I don't feel. And Picard's like, no, nah, but you really got to get the feeling of it. I don't want you just to, you know, copy Kenneth Branagh and Laurence Olivier and, you know, those other actors that you named. They were from the future, so I can't remember who they are right now. Um, I mean, he, he really wants him to feel it himself. And on the one hand, it seems like folly mm-hmm. to expect the impossible of this machine, you know, from this machine. Right. On the other hand, it's such a Star Trek thing, right? If you expect more of someone, and even if that someone is a machine, if you expect more of someone than anyone has ever expected before, they may step up. They may they may go ahead and surprise you. They they may go ahead and live up to that expectation, and no matter how unlikely it seems. It struck it struck me as odd though that Picard's like, no, 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 you unfeeling thing, you gotta feel. <laughs> right. Yeah, you, you know it, it's odd. But it, it's just so perfect, I think. I mean, here's the thing. Let, let's pretend for a moment that it's real mm-hmm. <laughs> because we go back and <laughs> forth on this. You know? Right. But let's pretend for a moment that it's real. Yeah. And, um, and here's Data, the, this person that you are working with, that, that you're around, that has saved your life multiple times, that, that you work with. And even if you are anthropologist, anthropomorphizing, even if you're laying this on, I, I think there's a bond, there's an affection that has grown there mm-hmm. between everybody. I mean, certainly, you know, the Jordian data friendship has grown, but but surely the Picard and data friendship has grown. Because, of course, data can be the perfect friend. <laughs> data can know everything and can make himself be into everything that you are into. So, it really, you know, that was glee on Patrick, uh, well, Patrick Stewart's Captain Picard's face mm-hmm. when, when they cut the scene um, in, the, in the opening there. So, so I kind of get it. E- even if in the end it can't really be a thing, well, yeah, may- maybe you're right. May- maybe it's just the expectation that hopefully he will exceed his programming at a certain point. Maybe that's what makes it exciting, you know? Yeah, maybe but, so. I mean, yeah. and of course, if you apply it to, I mean, it. I guess you can apply it to, you know, even if, even if I don't really expect you to do that. If I treat you like I expect you to, then maybe you'll go ahead and maybe you will go ahead somehow and be able to step up. Let's talk about the other Picard data scene for just a moment, um, because I, I thought it was a little too on the nose with Picard asking how the crew is taking things, because they, they really, he just said it like, yeah, remember at the beginning of the episode when you were doing Henry V and that whole thing, and yeah, I can't do that, so we're yeah. going to talk about it. Um, but it still worked, and it was still played right. And, you know, it wasn't just that opening bit of theater was a good metaphor for that. Well, I mean, a direct parallel to that moment, but it was a great metaphor for the whole thing, for the whole character journey of Admiral Jarrett kind of finding his humanity. You well, know, so, and, and also just the whole fact that he came in as one guy and it turns out he's someone else too. That's yeah, again, that's course. again, what's so amazing to me yeah. about the fact that they weren't going to do Henry V originally. <laughs> right. Because that scene is made for, oh, he's this guy who's like this low level, you know, sort of bureaucrat. Oh, oh, he's Admiral this guy. Oh, wow. That reveal. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's so, yeah. It, I mean, it is an interesting look at the sort of automatic separation between leaders and, and those they lead in this episode. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the whole Henry V and Picard thing as well. But then also, you know, what happened with uh, with with uh, Admiral Jarrock. This is going to sound crazy. Maybe I, Maybe I shouldn't do it. Oh no! If it's crazy, you got you got to bring the crazy. It, no, it actually doesn't work. Now that I think about it, so <laughs> so the Superman movie that came out um, a couple of years ago, as we record this, the one with uh, the Zack Snyder, Steel. yeah, Man of Steel, Henry Cavill, yeah, yes, exactly. Um, it's never made sense that nobody understood that you know Clark Kent was Superman because mm-hmm. just draw glasses on him in like a newspaper picture, and it's like, oh my goodness, that's that guy, right? Yeah. yeah. Nobody has seen his face in in the Superman movie. And mm-hmm. Man of Steel, nobody has seen his face. And so that's how he's able to do that. Now, I'm guessing it's going to work for about 10 minutes because, right. you know, at some point, 
Superman will be on camera and that will work. It's such a fascinating idea. It reminds me, too, of what was the other one? Um, oh, oh, uh, the bad guy. It was the, the colony where Kirk was and, and his daughter. And it was Shakespearean, too. It was the conscience of the king, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't remember yeah, that guy's name. Kodos. Kodos, Kodos the executioner. The executioner yeah. That's right. Same kind of thing. It never made sense to me. Like, nobody knew what he looked like. Really? They, they don't have an internet. <laughs> they, they don't have one of those memes going around. Looks just like. <laughs> Not in the 22nd century, I guess. By the 23rd. Paper looks just like this potato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> looks just like Kodos, the executioner. Uh-huh. I don't know. It just, it's, it, 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 see, that's just... That all of that part should end up on the cutting room floor if there were still a floor where that were cut. It just it was a fascinating idea to me. I guess the whole the hundred fifth mm-hmm. thing and how how Picard really can never he can never yeah. he can never just I'm mean, like even with his even with his like closest crew whatever you call it, senior staff even with senior staff he never seems to let his hair down um, not let his hair down but I mean there's always that separation what was the was it the naked now where he starts to step through a turbo lift door and is looking out at the vastness of space oh no no that, that, that was in um, uh, uh, where silence has lease where silence has lease okay yeah. we, we talked yeah. then about sort of the, the the weight that that scene showed that he is the only thing standing between this thousand people on the on the ship and, and the vast nothingness that is right outside the ship's hull right yeah, I mean it's it, it, it's 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 interesting to think about the, the 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 weight that is on command when they bring it up, you know. Because I mean, yeah, Picard's always in charge of all these people, but when they actually bring up how difficult that could be for you know the very one person at the very top, and how he's still just a guy. Um, I just it's sorry, it, it sent me like nine different places. I I don't want to spoil this. I think I may like this episode. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. Spoiled it. Okay. <laughs> I ruined it. People are going to turn it off now. They don't care anymore. Oh, he likes it. Well, I'm done. I know, right? Um, now, it, we've talked about the parallels that are there, but let's talk about a parallel that isn't there. Because I, it, Henry V is not a tragic story. In fact, Henry V is it, – it, it's not a comedy – but it's not a tragedy by any stretch of the imagination. It's a celebratory story about this battle of Agincourt, and, and it's rousing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jarok is an incredibly tragic figure. Um, he has done everything right, and and he has found his conscience, or or at least if his motivations aren't to preserve humanity or you know federation, it is to see past the insanity of starting a war, and he actually does that even though he's been tricked by his high command. So, so there is success in what he does, even though there's the realization what, what happened. So I think one of the tragedies here is that he can't see the good that he has done, even though he dragged the Enterprise into a dangerous situation and got lucky that they had an ace in the hole with the Klingons who were right on their flank. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is one of the one of the really sad things about Jarek. I mean, it, it hits home him talking about, well, obviously the poetry of the stars not being the right stars, but but missing his wife and his daughter, which makes that moment with Picard very interesting because Picard is ready to cut him off. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, 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 this is getting too personal. No, no, no. And then Jarek puts him in his place. What a terrific moment. What a great, great moment that was. Do you think the fact that he was wrong undercuts the nobility of what he did? Because I say there really is true nobility in what he's trying to do. Absolutely um, there is. Sacrificing his family and sacrificing, you know, I mean, not, not sacrificing his family, but sacrificing himself for his family. or, or He's never going to see them again. That's what it comes down to. He's never going to see his planet again. He's never going to see the right stars, as you say. Mm-hmm. Is the nobility undercut as a uh, as a message by the fact that he was duped? I well, here's the thing: it depends on whose point of view you're talking about. In his point of view, yes, it, it's completely out the window now. Mm-hmm. But from my point of view, and, and and I I would certainly think that gathering of people who came into his quarters to look over his corpse, yeah, I think they would uh, they would absolutely see the nobility in what he did, and they would absolutely see the the success in what he did. Hmm. There is a success in what he did. That gets man. That gets tough. I mean, that's it. It goes to well. It goes to. Uh, 
it goes to the whole, you know, uh, history being written by whom kind of thing, right? Okay, yeah. Um, you've got a note down here. What, what do you say about yeah. being a butcher? Yeah, Jarek says, one world's butcher is another world's hero. Perhaps I'm neither. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, also, a.k.a. history is written by the winners. Yeah. You know? So given that, I love that data is given the task of recording the events of what they're doing in a dispassionate way. He's about as good a reporter as you can ask for. You'd think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his, his appeal to data uh, um, for a dispassionate accounting of the events. I mean, I had the history as written by the victors thing because mm-hmm. we hear that a lot. And yet it might be more accurate to say history is written by the survivors, right? Okay, sure. So the yeah. winning side will say one thing. The losing side will say another. Both tellings will be colored by, you know, which side is telling the story. Um. Which it seems to me has the potential to raise questions about everything that we know about anything having to do with any history ever, no matter course, no matter who course. we are. Yeah. Which you know actually makes one wonder about Starfleet, or you know any any anything, or you know New York City, <laughs> or New York yeah, State, right. or the United States, or or any states or anything. There's a there's a story here. Recently, as we record this. Uh, that somebody's been uh, defacing a, a statue of Christopher Columbus, mm. uh, you know, because because yeah. of you know, fourteen ninety two is not quite the his, uh, the heroic thing that we think of it as today, and yet I'm pretty sure it wasn't Columbus by himself. I mean, it's amazing. Sure, like yeah. we now have. I mean, like he was always this big hero. Christopher Columbus discovered America, and now now Columbus is the guy who you know raped the Native Americans, and I'm pretty sure <laughs> somewhere yeah. in yeah. between is who that guy was. It's interesting mm-hmm. to see history sort of. Uh, written and rewritten around that. Well, we we love our symbolic outrage and we love our symbolic victories. Yeah, well, you know, we love easy. Yeah, <laughs> we really do love it. Yeah, in fourteen hundred ninety-two, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Okay, I know it now. I know. I know how. <laughs> I, yeah, I know right, America. Right. So that takes us. That takes us right up to seventeen seventy-five. <laughs> you know, sure. we kind of like. Uh, we kind of like the uh, sort of the easy. Uh, the easy way around it, I suppose. It's so. Then I come back to. Ha! Ah, do I want to keep it in fiction or do I want to go to reality? If you watch um, Remains of the Day, a lovely movie starring Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, who, who by the way, had a part in Henry V, uh, uh, but the Kenneth Branagh version of Henry V. Mm-hmm. Um, Lord Darlington appeased the Nazis. And the thing is, he didn't like the Nazis. He didn't want to work with the Nazis. He felt like he was going to be on the right side of history in this, not because the Nazis were going to win, but because he had had friends who were who were sort of mistreated after World War One. friends in Germany who were mistreated after World War One. And so he thought what he was doing was noble, right? Mm-hmm. And history went the other way on him. It turns out not so much. I mean, so in the Romulan Empire... Uh, Jarek is always going to be this horrible person who did this horrible thing. I mean, I yeah. love the fact that he thinks his daughter is going to grow up. It's, yeah. it's sort of like yeah. we talked yeah. about the guys in uh, The Enemy. Like, what, was he actually going to make it? Was that one guy going to make it all the way back to Romulus? We kind of thought, probably not. It's amazing to me that he thinks his daughter is going to grow up because I, I, don't, I don't actually see that as being in the cards for her. Um, yeah. At the same time, is the Federation really going to talk a lot about the, you know, his name is i don't know there was there was something about it that was just yes there was absolutely something noble about it and yet it's it's it seems like it's going to be lost and forgotten fairly quickly and then if you take it out of that take it to what is relatively recent history as we record this take it to snowden mm. is what he's done noble I guarantee you, if you had a room of 100 people, 50 of them would say yes and 50 of them would say no. And it might not be split 50-50, but there are lots of people who think that what he did was incredibly noble. And there are lots of people who think that what he did was incredibly traitorous. Yeah. And and it's just fascinating to – I don't know. It's fascinating to look at it because here is a guy who can't come home. Here is a guy who, who is, in fact, living someplace – and that gets into the whole then political argument about, well, he's actually a toady for these people or, you know, and who knows where he's living a year after we record this. I mean, there's no there's no telling what the future holds for him. Yeah. But he I mean, he he sacrificed something. And there are some people who you ask him, and they'll be like, that was totally a noble and righteous thing to do. And there are other people who are like, yeah, I can't wait to get him in jail. Yeah, right. And it's just it's it's fascinating to think about that. And then when you come across something like where Jarek was outright wrong, he was duped, but he was outright wrong. I mean, does that does that color his nobility at all? 
I, I don't think so. I mean, it, it pose that question, you know, you, you, you pose the hypothetical question about Snowden. I mean, is Jarek, maybe hero is too strong a word, but use, I think, the right word of nobility, you know, uh, where, where Jarek's intention is noble. If the net good is to not fight a war, and even though we came very close, but because of the way things played out, we didn't. <laughs> we, we learned the right information and we made the right moves to avoid it. You know, it, here's the thing. Something that inspired this story, uh, mm-hmm. Ronald D. Moore said, was a Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. You know, arguably the closest we've ever come to actually having an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this is the, – the drama of this episode is similar to the drama of that real-world event where it, it came so close – and it was only because there were people brave enough to not push the button that that we survived, you know. So from the Federation point of view, I, I don't see how they couldn't see Jarek as having the right and good and noble intent. And it's unfortunate to think that everybody on the Romulan side then gets to spin this as a traitor and a failure. And does this then rouse up the rest of the troops to want to go back into war with these easily duped Federation and and to weed out the traitors among them, you know, uh, amongst their own ranks within uh, within the Romulan army? I guess this nobility really shouldn't be up for question because we're in on the whole story. It just just sort of struck me like I began to wonder about his nobility, especially because it turns out that he was that, that he was duped at that point. And what were we talking about? We were talking about Worf choosing to not give his blood to the Romulans a few episodes back, and a lot of people walking around, you know, five years into the war with the Romulan Empire going, thanks a lot, jerk. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, was it noble that he would it have been more noble? It's, it's I don't know. It, it, it feels like it gets a little thorny. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say in this case, is he really noble? Because I think there's no doubt that he was. Except apparently in my head, there's a tiny little bit of doubt about whether or not he would necessarily be perceived to be. Let's talk about let's talk about something else. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the gut conversation that Data had with Jordy reminded okay. me of um, an episode. I can't remember the name of it. It was the one with um, with the asteroid and the other <laughs> asteroids, and they got stuck in the asteroid thing. It was stuck in sort of like a snare of some sort or a. Uh, Oh, oh! There, there was a trap. Yeah, kind of a trap, maybe. It was kind of like, uh, <laughs> like it's the kind of trap that. Yeah, I yeah. don't remember the name. So, of that so Picard takes the helm in the oh booby trap. Oh, booby trap. Booby trap. Okay, so Picard okay. takes the helm in booby trap, and 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 satellite and computer do it because sometimes you just have to rely on your gut. Right. Right. Um, on the one hand, you can see this as an argument against automation. On the other hand, it's an argument for experience and instinct. Um. It it reminded me of that, and I said we would circle back around to this, and I thought really I had more like questioning there, but I, maybe I just wanted another chance to say booby trap five times. <laughs> so it's for for every moment that Picard or anybody else on the crew has said, we're not good enough to do this thing, let the computer who's in that android body do this difficult thing that humans can't do. Exactly. That, yeah, okay. Yeah, it just, it's, I, I don't know, it was interesting. It was an interesting sort of callback, the whole... Explaining it again, how because he's almost explaining the data. Jordy is almost explaining to data the 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 superiority of of making a leap, the superiority mm-hmm. of just you know having random synapses fire as opposed to the very logical synapses that fire in data's brain. Yeah, and um, it was it was interesting to hear it again. I'm still not sure I I buy it in booby trap certainly, but it just, well, just go ahead. Yeah, I mean, because Data was right about Jarak. He wasn't right about he wasn't right about Jarak, but he was right about the situation. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, he thought he thought that Jarak was actually lying to them, and it turns out Jarak wasn't lying to them, but they were being lied to. So ultimately, Data was right. Yeah, just just in the wrong direction. Well, that's the thing. Jordy has made some pretty good arguments, but ultimately, Data Data was the only one capable of dispassionately bringing together the facts. Um, I, I kind of almost think about Elementary Dear Data when, when we're back to that situation again, where the, the question was, is he capable of abstract thinking mm-hmm. in a way to come to a conclusion that may still be the right conclusion, but is he capable of a way to kind of intuit his way into that correct information instead of 
you know, uh, the, the logical one following another and another and another to get to that point. Um, I mean, you know, ultimately you said it, data, data is right. <laughs> the guy, <laughs> the guy, the guy was lying, but, but again, the, the lie, the lie about who Jarek was, was still not as important as Jarek's mission. Right. But I mean, but it, I'm sorry, forgive me. I wasn't saying that Jarek was lying. I'm saying that they were all being lied to. Of course, of course. And, and, and yeah. Data, I mean, you could argue, actually, that Data made that leap somehow without realizing he was making that leap. I mean, nothing added up. Yeah. In the end, they all went with their gut. Jarek yeah. is right. And, and, and it turns out, no, Jarek was actually wrong. And, and Data somehow was able, I mean, was able just to weigh the facts and go, yeah, th this doesn't make sense. Has anyone ever counted the number of wars the Enterprise has helped the Federation avoid? Well... They have done it again. Now, what can we take from the defector? Well, the Klingons are headed back to Kronos, probably. The Romulans are heading back to Romulus, probably. The humans, well, the Federation ship. It's just out there doing what the Federation does. and We're doing what we're doing, too. Trying to figure out what the messages, morals, and meanings of... The Defector are, and whether or not the whole episode uh, holds up. And as is our way, we start with that question, John. Uh, the Defector, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Before I do that, can I just prevent a torrent of email and tweets to say that uh, Picard stepping off the turbo lift into the emptiness of space was where no one has gone before. Where no one has gone before. Okay. Where no one. No yeah, one. Not no man. You can see why I thought it was the naked now. Right. <laughs> because it was a renaming and a retelling of an old... Of an old thing, right? Well, not there a, we not, go. it wasn't a yeah. retelling. It was uh, where no one has gone before. Was not a retelling of where no man has gone before. But it was. It was just using the title. It was reusing the title. With, with just a little twist. Just a yep. little twist. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, well done, by the way. Uh, heading off that torrent of email. There you go. Right. Okay. Uh, so does now, this does this episode hold up? up? That was the question. The yeah. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> um, historical and literary references and, and a lot of stuff we didn't even get to touch upon here. Soviet history and, and we just barely mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis and, and honestly insert whatever touchstone you want. I didn't even get to go off on a monologue about the hunt for Red October and I was tempted, believe me. Um, yeah, but you got the crazy Ivan in there, so that's good. I got it in there, yes. Yeah. Um, what it all boils down to is the bravery of the people involved. So Jarek has to see past the politics of his situation. And I love his hesitance, even after he has gone past the point of no return and, and still struggling with the loyalty to the Romulans and to his family. Picard is faced with an impossible decision and simply has to do the best he can. So it's riveting. And it's especially riveting the second or third time around for me because I kept picking up more and more of all of these great ideas bouncing around. And, and I like the individual scenes, particularly with Sloyan as Jarek, uh, more so on the rewatch. He has a little bit of a Christopher Lloyd vibe. I don't know, to me. <laughs> he I don't know no, how, he did. I, I, I saw yeah. it, actually. I saw what you were talking about. Yeah, um, now, more than one person wrote to us to tell us that this is their hands-down favorite episode. And and I don't know if I'm ready to go there yet, because we still have a lot to go. Mm -hmm. But does it hold up for me? Yes, hands-down, absolutely this holds up. And what's better, it holds up the more I watch it. Mm -hmm. So how about you? There was one thing that came close to taking me out of this episode. Um, mm. And only one thing. And it was the inconsistency around Federation knowledge or Starfleet knowledge of the Romulans. Um, the replicators cannot make Romulan ale, but the holodeck can show them a representation of a particular valley on Romulus <laughs> that's almost good enough to fool a Romulan. Um, and that really, the fact that, I mean, I think you mentioned it earlier, the fact that, that Bones was able to bring Kirk Romulan ale <laughs> in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Right. We, we 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 didn't talk about that, but yes, he brings over. There was Romulan ale everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Right? And by the way, I don't know if you noticed it, but Picard has got a Romulan ale decanter in his ready room. <laughs> well, it's just the decanter, though, right? Yeah, it's, it's that decanter you love it. so much. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's sort of like um, I can get I I can get a Cuban cigar mm -hmm. twenty miles from my house because mm -hmm. I live near the Canadian border. 
and yet we can't get Cuban cigars here in the U.S. It, it is, the replicator really should be able to make a good Cuban cigar, and it should be able to make Romulan ale. I wondered, actually, if it's a thing where it's like, nope, nope, we don't deal in Romulan whatever, officially. Like, <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink, we don't deal in Romulan whatever. Right. And, that, and, and here's the thing, that, that sounds like a minor point, but this was such an incredibly strong episode that any hiccup, and I think that's the only hiccup in this episode, any hiccup feels like, why, well, that's dumb. Why, ah. Oh. And it didn't ruin it. It's fine. It's a very small thing, and it makes a point about what Admiral Jarek is giving up. But, I mean, that was the hardest time that I had. Um, we once again have actors showing up and delivering great performances for a great script. Um, yeah. The guy who plays Jarek is is amazing all the way through, I think. I don't know if it's the direction or the script or the prosthetic forehead. I don't know what it is. But he is in this character all the way through it. And the scene between him and Patrick Stewart that you talked about in Picard's Ready Room yeah. convinced me. I mean, it's, it's actually a, beautiful, it's a yeah. beautiful thing. I am just not convinced. What must I do? <laughs> convince me. Convince I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's beautiful and it's simple and it's just – that scene is just absolutely amazing. Um, it is interesting to me because I was ready to credit the whole thing to Ronald D. Moore. And if you're telling me, no, actually, he, he built the framework, but a lot of the best stuff came from other people. Yeah. I, then I don't know. I mean, because the other strongest acting that we've seen so far, it seems to me, is in The Bonding, which was his first script mm-hmm. for Next mm-hmm. Gen. Uh, that, was, that was when Gates McFadden really shined as an actress. I mean, so, it, so I guess it's just happy coincidence that we're getting like two of the strongest performances uh, in in these two episodes, maybe he builds just such an amazing framework that there's plenty for people to play in, even if they aren't. Each one isn't his word. I don't know. I I mean, two more episodes like this that have his name as the writer, and I'm gonna I'm I'm, I'm gonna be absolutely convinced it's him. Um, yeah, I mean, just just standout acting, an amazing story. And what's weird is you and I talked about it when I first watched this episode. I thought, well, that's riveting, but there's really not much to talk about. It's just a good story. <laughs> and then when I went back and watched it again, I'm like, what was I, high? Was I drunk? Was I falling asleep? What was it? Because there's just, it's an incredibly rich and meaty episode as well. Do you remember when we interviewed Roberto Orsi and I, I was, and I, I will continue to do so, but, but I was critiquing certain choices about Into Darkness. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, well, see, you're, you're playing the home game. You're just trying to think through it and you know what's coming and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, you know, I can't turn that off because I've seen this story before. Um, I, I feel like the first time I was watching this, mm-hmm. I was trying to play the home game. And I was like, oh, okay, well, he's a defector or he's not or he's lying or he's not or he's Marco Ramius or he's not. And, and then I get to the end of it. Oh, okay, so that's what happened and everybody's okay. When I went back to watch it a second and a third time, and I just paid attention scene by scene to what was going on with the performance, that's what drew me back in, and that's what made me think it was even better. Yeah. So I, I think that is partly to blame for my initial, not dislike, but but just sort of going, hmm, okay, that's good, <laughs> you know, and then coming back and saying, wow, this is really remarkable. Yeah, it's really quite good. By the way, uh, Ronald D. Moore said that he credits himself for the original idea, mm-hmm. and then that draft went away. Okay, and then he wrote the teaser and Act One, and the rest of it was divided up. Hmm. But I, here's the thing: I mean, I don't think it's any slight to Ronald D. Moore. I think it's because every great writer and every great director needs a great editor. Different kinds of editors, but they, they need a great editor. So that that doesn't mean that the bones aren't there. Yeah. You know, it just means that it it gets crafted into something even better. So, um, but yeah, you know, the the emotional moments in the show are, I think, what really make it stand up, especially to repeat viewings. The rest of that scene, that that Picard and Jarek scene in the ready room, he says, my daughter will grow up thinking I'm a traitor, but she will grow up, is... That that says it all right there. It's a it's a great moment. It's terrific. It shows everything that's on the line for him and how important this moment is to him. Um, what about messages? What do we get here? Well, I mean, this is well. It gave us a lot to chew on. Um, mm-hmm. The messages uh, I, I almost feel thin, um, which I know sounds crazy. I mean, there's there's a ton of great stuff to play with in here, and yet the only messages I could pull out are like you know if something appears to be good 
too good to be true, it probably is. But that's a crappy, crappy, horrible message. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it seems like it could lead to you know constant suspicion and mistrust and yeah, double checking, triple checking, quadruple checking, and checking so much that you never actually move or do. Um, there's a very simple one. I mean, that, that actually goes straight to Boy Scouts. Um, well, the Boy Scouts say be prepared. Um, always have a backup plan. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and if that backup plan can be twice as strong as what you're up against and four times as strong as you, then that's that's really better. <laughs> um, I mean, it's weird because uh, while we've talked about how rich, rich this episode is, I mean, it's not there is no you see, Timmy. There is no this is not an anti-drug. This is not a save the whales. This is this is this is a complex situation with complex characters doing um, doing a lot of really complex stuff. And in the end. Um, it, it doesn't actually, I mean, even the bonding crud, even the bonding had a happy ending. It was miserable all the way through, but it had a happy ending at least. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I can, I can, I can tag those messages in there, but I mean, it's not a message episode. What, what about you? What do you think? It's funny. You were talking about the, the happy ending. I kind of thought about this ending with the death of Jarek amid the controversy of killing Utah at the end of the vengeance factor. Hmm. Because I felt like the way this story is told, we really, again, we have no choice but to see Jarek die mm -hmm. at the end of this episode. I'd like to think that there would be an alternative, but dramatically from the character, everything, it all kind of has to lead up to that. Um, the, the pain and the humiliation of what happened combined with this tragedy that he won't see his family or his home again, it sort of all had to lead up to that moment. And and part of the tragedy is I feel like Jarek maybe had more to offer, but he decides it's the end of the road for him because he can't imagine a life outside of, of this. So what I thought of, well, I used the word bravery earlier to describe kind of that as being the, the core of the character journey for both Jarek and Picard. Mm -hmm. These are both people whose bravery is being tested and it's not just bravery of going into battle, but it's bravery bravery about principle. What is more important here? What it, What is more at stake here? The idea that it's better to save people and prevent this war from happening rather than sort of towing the party line and accepting that this is inevitable. I thought about the end of Mirror Mirror. One man cannot summon the future, but one man can change the present. That's the burden that Jarek has taken for himself. So he shares a uh, he shares some DNA with uh, Mirror Spock in that respect. You know, it's interesting. Something in what you just said made me feel like you could actually boil this whole episode down to uh, maybe one simple, maybe one simple message. Although it might be oversimplifying it, um, it's better to do what's right than what's expected. Maybe. Hmm are more important maybe to do what is right than, than what's expected. Except of course it doesn't work out for him. <laughs> no, no. But I guess that's, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's sort of one of the sub messages, I guess too. It's but, like, yeah, always it, do your best. Oh, and you might still die. <laughs> you might still never get to go home, but, but always do your best. I mean, cause he certainly could have told the line like a good little Romulan and they could have ended up in this, you know, uh, bloody awful war that they were apparently marching toward anyway. Although how his, Having done this, maybe stop that from happening doesn't quite make sense, but that's, but it, that's it trying to. Work. That's yeah. well, it, it worked right then. Yeah. It only worked right yeah. then. I mean, it, it only would have started right then because of him as well, though. I mean, that's almost setting up a time travel paradox in a way. Yeah, well, he stopped true. the war by almost starting the war, but that stopped the war. Eh, that's. But I mean, maybe, but maybe you could, maybe you could make that a message if you wanted to. That it's more important to do what's right than than what's expected. Maybe. So does that hold up, John? Do you think? Huh? All all of it. Holds all of it. Can just all, all right. of it holds up. If you if you see none of the messages in there, you're still watching an absolutely fantastic episode of Star Trek. I think I I I like you cannot say that this is my favorite or one of my favorites yet. Well, I could probably say now it's one of my favorites. I can't say it's yeah. my favorite, but uh, I think I said earlier this uh, earlier in season three that there were going to be a lot of times we're going to say this is my favorite episode now. <laughs> You know, but you know me, I'll forget last week's episode before we're even done with this week's episode. So that's not saying a whole lot. Here is what is saying a whole lot, my friend. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more about uh, about all the kinds of things that happen at Roddenberry.com. Uh, 
Well, at Roddenberry.com is the place to find out what happens at Roddenberry.com, honestly. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, you can check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. Find it online. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, The Hunted. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. This episode brought to you by Tomalox Romulan Ale. Tomalox Romulan Ale. Available across the Federation, even if they deny it. And transmission. <laughs>